I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Last year, the biotechnology industry set records across the board for financial metrics, a reflection of product successes, new drug approvals, and free-flowing investment capital. Despite the record performance, concerns continue about growing pricing pressure and maturing pipelines that represent challenges with which the industry must contend. We spoke to Glenn G. Vanetti, EY's global life sciences leader, about his firm's recently released Beyond Borders report what the numbers tell us, and what the industry will need to do to keep the good times rolling. Glenn, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here, Danny. Thanks for having me. EY released its annual Beyond Borders report at the annual Bio-International Convention that recently concluded. By almost any measure, last year was a stellar year. How good a year was it in terms of the numbers? Uh, well, you got it right. It was a stellar year, really off the charts. In fact, we titled the report Reaching New Heights uh, for just that reason. Uh, but on almost every key metric, uh, the industry either set a record or, you know, set a 10-year high. Uh, you know, so we're talking about revenue, profitability, IPOs, capital raised, market cap. So, yeah, a very strong year across uh, many measures and uh, much of the reason that people are feeling uh, – pretty confident these days about biotech. Gilead Science has enjoyed unprecedented success with its hepatitis C franchise, so much so that throughout the report, you qualify the numbers. Even without Gilead, it was a big year, but but how big an impact did Gilead have on the overall numbers? Uh, you know, well, I guess you'd have to think about that in a couple of ways. So one of the things we've done for a number of years in the report is to separate out what we call the commercial leaders, which are companies with more than $500 million of revenue from the rest of the industry, the great preponderance of which is uh, earlier stage R&D companies, many, most that don't have a product on the market. Um, but certainly within the commercial leading group of companies, uh, you know, Gilead's launch of their hepatitis C franchise, you know, was unprecedented and had a huge impact on revenue, on profitability, uh, you know, on almost all the, the financial performance measures. But, you know, we, I didn't, see it so much as qualifying that we were saying how the industry do without Gilead, but really to point out that, you know, Gilead's results were phenomenal, but the rest of the industry still performed pretty darn well. So the, the, the other commercial leaders still saw their type, top line grow uh, double digit, about 12%. They actually increased their R&D spending by 14%. And that group of companies actually saw their market cap grow by uh, 40%. So, uh, you know, Gilead was certainly a bellwether and certainly brought enthusiasm uh, to the sector, uh, you know, from an investor standpoint. But, uh, you know, the rest of the commercial leaders uh, performed very well. And in fact, you know, of course, it was a great year for the smaller companies as well, especially on the capital raising side. As you just mentioned, uh, uh, there's been a healthy increase in R&D spending. Put it into perspective for us. What significance do you see in this? Uh, well, I think it's really a... Um, you know, it's a question of confidence. Obviously, 
you know, R&D investment, you know, well spent. And, and I think I'd argue that most of the smaller companies are, are very focused and, uh, you know, pretty efficient in their use of capital. Uh, so, you know, more capital available, well spent, uh, you know, should drive, uh, uh, you know, more prolific pipelines downstream. So that's good. But I think uh, it's worth taking a step back to remembering the period right after the financial crisis where the where the confidence just wasn't there that the capital would be available as companies needed it. And we saw a lot of companies pull back, appropriately so, they really didn't have an alternative, but pull back to really funding their lead asset and, and frankly, putting some of the rest of the pipeline, uh, you know, uh, on ice for a while, if you will. And, you know, that has the effect of, uh, of course, you know, magnifying the impact of that lead product and uh, sort of putting all eggs in one basket. So I look at, you know, the, the situation today where, in the last two years, really, where capital uh, flows have been, you know, very significant into the industry, is providing companies with a greater degree of optionality. Uh, we know that, you know, most things in biotech uh, don't pan out. Most drugs don't make it all the way through. And so having optionality to be placing bets across the pipeline to be in- to uh, be interesting, I'm uh, sorry, uh, uh, gaining interest from, uh, you know, pharmaceutical partners potentially across the pipeline, uh, you know, really speaks well to the to the strength of the industry. The, the IPO market continues to drive on. What, what do valuations say about investor appetite and are we seeing spillover to other markets beyond the United States? Uh, yeah, well, it's been a phenomenal, you know, U.S. Primarily driven uh, IPO market, as you know, 2013 was strong. You know, to confess, I didn't, I didn't foresee that 14 would be uh, the year it was. You know, we've never seen going back in the 30 years, uh, you know, that we've been tracking the industry an IPO window that lasted beyond four or five quarters, and we're arguably in our ninth quarter now of a pretty, you know, still pretty open window. People might argue that it was getting a little. Uh, uh, more challenging uh, in this most recent quarter, but we've just seen you know a half a dozen or so deals close. So I'd, I'd argue it's still open. Uh, and so um, uh, you know that's again phenomenal in terms of the access to capital and what that means for those companies who are able to uh, uh, to access that market. It's certainly been fueled by enthusiasm from generalist investors who have uh, you know really. Um, well, not only rotated in heavily into the sector in 13 and 14, but have, um, you know, stayed in and are still backing some of these IPOs today. Uh, in terms of spillover, you know, 13 was not a strong year from an IPO perspective in Europe, but uh, 14 rebounded to be, you know, the second best year uh, ever for IPOs in Europe, uh, you know, second only to the year 2000, which was, of course, the the genome bubble era and, you know, really um, the amounts of money raised in Europe that year may, may never be approached again. But uh, this is the first time we've really seen uh, the market open in quite some time in Europe. This is after six, seven years of almost no activity. So uh, I think there was a value arbitrage play there where some, you know, later stage companies uh, as investors looked at, you know, the valuations that were being obtained in the U.S., uh, you know, these assets looked interesting, and therefore there was enthusiasm when they came public. I, I would note that, I, you know, about a dozen of those companies, of, the, of about, the, I think there were 31 that went public in, in 2014 in, in Europe, about a dozen of them chose to list in the United States on NASDAQ. The robust IPO market means venture investors have been getting exits. There's been a dramatic change from time of first investment to IPO. Can, can you put that in some perspective and, and what's the impact been on new venture investment? Well, um, yeah, that's an interesting phenomenon because, 
uh, a few years ago, we charted that, and you're absolutely right that uh, the the period from founding to exit, either through an IPO or M and A transaction, had had uh, gone up to eight or nine years, which uh, is a real challenging uh, length of time, uh, you know, from a rate of return perspective for investors, for, for venture investors, but also, uh, you know, because often, most often, their funds have ten-year lives, so uh, uh, you know. An exit that takes that long could be a real challenge from a, a you know fund management standpoint. Uh, some of that, frankly, is reversed with this IPO market. You know, we saw a number of deals where companies got out very early. I'd say the first wave of companies may have been a little more mature because we haven't seen a robust market uh, prior to 2013. But as you looked at the progression of companies across the latter parts of 13 or 14, uh, you know, we saw a couple, many companies that have really gone from founding. You know, less than five years ago uh, to IPO, uh, which you know is something we hadn't seen for for many many years. M and A activity was strong, particularly if you factor out mega transactions. What are valuations saying, and, and how much competition was there between big pharma and, and big biotech? Yeah, well, valuations are saying, uh, and I'd say this is both in the M and A and in the alliance space that it's a good time to be a seller in biotech. Uh, you know, it's a seller's market because companies have options. Uh, there's plenty of capital, at least for the time being, available from the equity markets, and so uh, you know, biotechs are negotiating from a, a position of strength. So we certainly say, saw uh, uh, you know exit premiums, M and A premiums, go up uh, this past year. I know we analyzed it for the top 10 deals, and the premium went up about uh, 9% to 45%, so pretty healthy premium over the you know, so-called undisturbed stock price. Uh, so, yes, there is uh, negotiating power uh, amongst um, amongst biotechs. Uh, on the flip of that, pharma in particular is still looking for attractive assets to acquire. They have their own growth challenges. Uh, you know, in the past year, pharma has been more focused, in a way, on transactions uh, around their own portfolio. We saw a lot of sort of trading of businesses or, or therapeutic franchises among pharma companies as they sought to gain uh, you know, greater focus in their business. But for those that were sellers, they freed up a lot of capital, and our expectation was they'll, they'll continue to look uh, for attractive biotech assets um, to, uh, you know, uh, to drive their own future growth. Big biotech hasn't been a big player in the past couple of years in M&A. Uh, they've had such healthy growth. I don't think the the uh, need to do anything significant was there. Uh, they are going to be coming up periods where uh, the you know showing comparable growth of, uh, as compared to a very strong 2014 and 2013 may become more challenging. Uh, you know, I suspect we may see them step in, especially since they have an awful lot of dry powder. You know, they've um, uh, both in terms of profits and their market valuation. So, uh, again, I think good time to be a seller. Pharma looking for assets, big biotech's got a lot of firepower to do deals. Uh, there's specialty pharma companies that have been active and also looking to do deals. So uh, we, we expect those premiums to stay robust. That was a busy year for partnering deals as well. I think you'd characterize that as a seller's market too. What impact did that have on upfronts and, and total deal values? Uh, yeah, total deal values, as you know, in this industry, Danny, are, you know, measured in bio bucks, <laughs> which, uh, you know, are, you know, maybe worth looking at just in terms of, uh, uh, the richness of deals. We know all that cash, uh, won't change hands, but the, the bio buck value of deals, uh, did soar, uh, amongst, um, 
U.S. and European biotech companies to over $50 billion after, uh, you know, three years where uh, it had been down under $30 billion. It, you know, we'd really seen sort of a step down in the, in the potential value of deals. Uh, so, again, indicative of a seller's market. But uh, as you know, uh, you know, we would think the bellwether of the actual upfront payments is, is more important to watch. And that number soared as well this last year to uh, just over $5 billion. So, you know, you can think about uh, the many billions raised in the capital markets, but an additional $5 billion coming in upfront from, uh, from big pharma and, in this case, big biotech. Uh, you know, certainly adds to the strength of these balance sheets. And uh, again, that was a significant step up over each of the last three years. Well, biotech is a maturing industry. Are, are we heading towards a situation where the largest biotechs are going to face the type of problems that big pharma face in terms of filling their pipeline to fuel growth, as well as facing competition from biosimilars and creating a patent cliff of sort for this industry? I. Uh, yeah, I think the long-term answer to that is yes. I mean, that will, that's the evolution of the industry that, you know, companies are pressured to come out with uh, innovative new products. And, and that innovation has to be increasingly at the science level, but also uh, at, um, you know, really at the health system level. And by that, I mean demonstrating, you know, true value to patients in terms of improved outcomes or significant efficiency to the health system in terms of sa- uh, cost savings. And, you know, possibly, uh, preferably both. Uh, so, th- you know, that's the reality of everybody operating in the drug business. Um, you know, biosimilars have been a long time coming. They're 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 basically here today, and you see a lot of, of uh, um, you know significant companies jumping into that uh, area, seeing it as a significant market opportunity. Uh, so, yeah, I do expect we'll see increasing amounts as, as both regulators get more comfortable with biosimilars and payers, you know, desire more competition. Uh, you know, we'll see that as an inevitable evolution of um, of, the, of the competitive landscape for the mature biotechs. You know, they remain uh, focused on and are producing very significant new medicine. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a reality of the life cycle of the industry. I don't I don't think it is a negative. I think there's still some fantastic innovation happening uh, amongst the big biotech companies that that um, you know make their future growth prospects continue to look strong. When this industry worries about threats and challenges, pricing seems to come to the top of the list these days. We we saw PBMs try to bring competition to bear to drive pricing down. CancerDocs recently launched an online cost comparison tool. Are any efforts bringing about meaningful change, and, and how big a threat is pricing to the industry? Well, I, I, again, I put this all in the category of evolution, more uh, focus on value um, for price. I mean, the, the headlines are price, but the real conversations around value, uh, you know, did patients benefit or did the health system overall benefit? Uh, you know, that is a reality. I, I, we can, we can call it a threat, but it, it's, it's the reality. You're not going to be able to, uh, produce a product that's in a heavily competitive area and market it intensely and get the same results you might have, you know, five or 10 years ago. This is really going to be a question of data, uh, often real world data about demonstrating real benefits. So I think that's been, uh, internalized by, most companies in the industry, big pharma, big biotech, even those you know thinking about their R and D pipelines, how that's going to manifest itself in terms of innovative pricing or uh, at risk pricing or other models uh, is something we're, we're beginning to study very carefully. I mean, there's some you know early experiments in that area, but it's really too early to tell how that's going to play out. Uh, 
but yeah, this is this is the reality of the industry. Uh, you know, it's going to require um, more differentiation and and more data to prove that that differentiation really has value to payers and well, to patients. Are there other things the industry should be worrying about? What What do you think will bring an end to the good times? Well, um, you know, again, I think I separate that from the the largest companies uh, who have plenty of uh, capital uh, to fund their business and. Um, and to you know either bolster their internal pipelines or going out or go out and you know acquire interesting technologies, uh, they're really playing from a position of strength. And so it, the real question here is just what we covered. It's 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 making a compelling case both for their existing products and what's in the pipeline around pricing and value. For the rest of the industry, the, the earlier stage companies, you know, they their fortunes are tied closely to the capital markets and to the availability of capital. And you know the questions come up a lot: Is this a bubble? And, you know, certainly you can look at metrics where there are values of earlier stage companies that, that look frothy. Uh, uh, you know, the question for me is one of, is it a case of a bubble that pops suddenly and investors feel burned and retreat all at once? Or is it a question more of this being a generalist-led uh, rally? Uh, and as generalists will do, they may rotate to other sectors that, that look relatively inexpensive by comparison and such that we might see the air come out of the balloon, if you will, a little, uh, in a little more orderly fashion, kind of a hard landing versus soft landing. Um, you know, I, I don't know the outcome to that, but I do, I do think that there's enough excitement and there's enough real science and, you know, enough, um, uh, uh, pipeline potential in these earlier stage companies that I don't think it's going to be a case of a single product failure of an early stage company spooking the entire market. So, um, you know, it, we won't divorce the fact that the early stage companies are tied to the fortunes of the capital market, but I'm hopeful we'll have a period here where even as we come off the top, there'll be, you know, relative uh, uh, decent access to capital for all these newly public companies. Glenn Giovanetti, EY's global life sciences leader. Glenn, thanks so much for your time. Hey, Danny, thank you. Appreciate it being here. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.